Am I on now? There we go. All right. Hebrews chapter 9. We are continuing in what we have been talking about for a while now. I, I asked the question to you all this morning, do any of you guys get tired of hearing the same thing over and over and over again to the point where you want to just scream in your mind, we get it? Well, I hope that's not the case this morning as we preach our 30th message on the New Covenant and Old Covenant out of the book of Hebrews. But there is a reason behind the author's purpose in wanting to make sure that this message is being delivered. Because in the essence of what we have been preaching over the last several weeks, we see the gospel at its core, the foundation of our faith. What we build our entire faith on is what we have been talking about over the last several weeks. And I found a quote this week from C.J. Mahaney. He's a senior pastor at Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville. He once said this in pertaining to the gospel. He said, never be content with your current grasp of the gospel. The gospel is the life-permeating, world-altering, universe-changing truth. It has more facets than a diamond, and its depths man will never exhaust. So this morning, as we preach another message on the gospel, let us not roll our eyes and let out a big, ugh, but let us find joy in understanding that this message that we're preaching this morning is the good news that saves us each and every day. And as you grow in your faith, this gospel doesn't become the milk of which you were saved, but it becomes the essence of the meat that you continue to chew on as you grow. In my life, as I've continued on in my spiritual walk, I initially had a thought when I was a young kid that the gospel was that foundational truth of just like mathematics. That's how I kind of viewed the Christianity. If, as, as long as I know addition and subtraction, then I can move on to bigger and greater things. But that's not how the gospel works. It's the foundation of our faith, but in essence, everything that we learn and every aspect of our lives involves the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we could preach from here until Christ returns on the gospel and we would never exhaust its power. So this morning, brothers and sisters, let us not grow weary of hearing this beautiful message. It should just be a daily reminder to us until the day that we die. The gospel should be present and applicable in every aspect of our lives and every situation. So let us not be annoyed in hearing it yet again. You can be annoyed at hearing me yet again. Kevin told you he's coming back, all right? But let us not get annoyed at the message that we're hearing today. Hebrews 9, if you guys want to turn there and start at verse 15. It says, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. For, there, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, 
He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer, suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you this morning. Lord, we thank you once again for your word. God, we thank you for the power it has in our lives, Father God. And Lord, just a reminder of your gospel each and every day in our lives. Lord, let us this morning and every day of our lives never grow weary of that good news, but let it fuel us. Let it bring joy into our lives, Lord, in every aspect. Let it, let it be the motivating force to being a good spouse, to being a good coworker, to being a good friend, to being the disciple that we have been now called to be, Father. Lord, let it motivate us each and every day. And this morning, Lord, as we look at the blood, Lord, we pray, Father God, that you would just allow your word to flow through uh, myself, and Lord, let it uh, pierce our hearts, all of us, have open ears and open hearts to receive this, Father Lord. I just now pray, Lord, that you would empty me of myself and fill me with your spirit, Father God, to deliver this message from you. God, let us uh, dive into your word this morning, and we just ask this all in your son's holy name, amen. So I broke this down. The title of this uh, is called Nothing But the Blood. Nothing but the blood. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Our focus is going to be on the blood of Christ. So three points that you'll see in your bulletin there. The first point is the needed blood. Second point is the perfect blood. And the third point is because of the blood. We're going to look at not necessarily, and we'll point this out later, not necessarily what Christ did, but how Christ did it. A point that I feel like we maybe overlook sometimes. But before we do that, we see a uh, kind of a different title, not a different title in means of what we see uh, in Christ in the general, but we see a different title that we've seen here in Hebrews in verse 15. It says that, therefore he, pointing back to previous verses, who is the he that he is talking about? Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. So to catch everyone up, we have an old covenant and now Christ has come and fulfilled that old covenant and is ushering in the new and it says that he is the mediator of the new covenant. Now, I think it's important for us to define what this means as mediator. All right? If you look it up in an earthly sense, in an earthly dictionary, the meteor, mediator is one who acts as an interceder to work with opposing sides in order to bring about a settlement or compromise. 
A mediator attempts to influence a disagreement between two parties with the goal of resolving a dispute. All right, so we kind of understand what the term mediator means, right? We have two opposing sides, and we have someone in the middle that's trying to fa- figure out which, where's the compromise here that we can come to an agreement, all right, that we can settle this debt or dispute that's going on bes- between both sides. And if we know our Bibles and we, are, and we understand Christianity, we understand that this dispute is between us and God. And the problem in that dispute is our sin. But this problem, though, that we see here, there's, there's not going to be any sort of compromise from God. That's why I think it's important that we define mediator here because in the earthly sense, a mediator tries to find common ground between the two sides But that's not what Christ is doing here because a holy God cannot compromise his holiness to be accepting of our sin. So when Christ comes in to mediate, we have to understand that that's not what we're talking about here, the definition I just gave you, the definition that many of us are familiar with. So therefore, we must be careful to define Christ as that type of mediator, 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 mediator. But when Christ comes as the mediator of the new covenant, we have to understand that he is in full agreement with God about the wretchedness of our sins and the punishment that is deserving of those sins. Christ is not coming to compromise our sins and to lessen our sins by any means, but Christ understands fully the wretchedness of our sins. He understands it greater than what we do. So he's not coming to the table, the mediation table, to try to compromise that by any means. But what he does is he goes in place of us. He goes in our place. Think about this for a second. This would be like a defense attorney hearing the judge say that their client is guilty. And the the defense attorney looks back at the judge and says, I fully agree with that verdict. I completely agree that they are guilty upon all charges that have been placed in their their place. He doesn't sit there and he doesn't try to fight for a lesser charge. He doesn't try to fight for an innocent verdict. He knows that his client is guilty. He doesn't try to fight that at all. But the difference between a defense lawyer just allowing his client to go and face the punishment the defense lawyer steps in place and says, Judge, I agree with the guilty verdict, but I will take the punishment. What a beautiful picture we see painted here of Christ, our mediator, standing in our place. The problem is, though, that the guilty, the guilty verdict that has been given to us because of our sins is not some time in prison but it's a death sentence. It's the death penalty. So when the defense lawyer steps in and says, I will take the punishment, he's not saying, I will go to jail in their place. He's saying, I will take my life for theirs. That brings a whole new meaning to the word mediator that Christ does here. Romans 6.23 tells us that for the wages of sin is death. 
And because of this, in order for our sins to be paid for, in order for these two sides that are having the dispute, in order for the mediator to do his job and settle this dispute, he cannot compromise and come to an agreement, but what he does is he has to pay the settlement right then and there. And both sides agree that whenever the Christ, when Christ comes in our place and pays the punishment for our sins, now there has been reconciliation. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. The curtain had been torn. The debt had been paid. And now we can be in one with God. We can enter into his presence now because of what Christ, our mediator, did for us. But we have to understand what he did He shed his blood. He shed his blood. If we look back to the old covenant, which we have hit on several times over the last several weeks, this point, this this old covenant, we said it wasn't worthless in its purpose, but it was worthless in salvation. All it did was point to the one who could save, but it could not save. But in every aspect of the old covenant, it pointed forward to the Messiah. It pointed forward to the Savior. And we see this when we see this sacrifice of animals in the Old Covenant. When they would sacrifice animals, they would kill them and they would shed their blood on the seats to atone for the sins of the people. I debated on sharing this story this morning, but I think we have a great enough crowd in here that's probably experienced this before. All right, But when we think about this aspect of sacrificing animals, and we think about this, what blood signifies. Blood is the sign of life. All of us in here have a little bit of a basis of science within us, a little bit of basis of biology in us, that we understand that in order for our bodies to live, we have to have blood, right? And blood loss can ultimately lead to life loss. So blood is the life that flows within our bodies. It carries our oxygen where it needs to go. If we lose our blood, we die. And I never really got a picture of this until I was in Mexico at Casas Por Cristo building a house. It may have been with the youth or another different time. I forget when it was. But we uh, were working there, and there was a chicken running around the whole day while we were working. And while this chicken was running around, I kind of wondered, like, why is there wild chickens running around here? You know, I grew up in a, and uh, I, we didn't really have animals at all at our house. So um, I was kind of wondering what was happening. Well, then they grab this chicken, they tie its legs to this stick, and what do they do? They cut its neck. Maybe a little gruesome, but I'm sure most of you have experienced this before. All right. And what happens is, is this, the blood drips out of the neck, and blood is losing, so the chicken is dying. I told WP this morning, I'm glad that we didn't name the chicken when we saw it running around and we got attached to it, all right? But then later on, that chicken became our supper, all right? But that, that, that sign of me looking there and seeing that chicken, that blood just drip from that chicken, and each with each drop, life being sucked out of it, it gives us a good picture of what the blood represented, When there was blood shed, it wasn't that the blood was some kind of secret blood that paid the price, but it was ultimately just a sign of the death that had occurred in order for the sins to be paid for. The blood was just pointing towards the death. It wasn't necessarily the blood shed. It wasn't like 
they would sacrifice an animal and just slit it a little bit and then take that blood and pour it on there. No, this, this animal was sacrificed. It was killed. So we hear all the time about what Christ did for us, but do we truly understand how he did it? Albert Moeller says that Hebrews demonstrates that this is the Father's will that his people not only understand what Christ has done for us, but how he did it. Because in the how Christ achieves our redemption, we more fully understand and God fully demonstrates the glory of himself. We cannot honor, appreciate, and worship God for what he has done for us unless we understand what it costs to achieve it. I think we lose, we lose sight of that sometimes. We understand what Christ did for our salvation, but do we truly understand what it costs for him to do it? So how did he do it? Well, let me tell you. He died a death that was meant for us. Brothers and sisters, Christ did not merely enter into the Holy of Holies, cut his arm and sprinkle the blood on there. No, what Christ did is he died a gruesome death on the cross. He took the wrath of God upon himself, the wrath that was meant for us, for our sins. He went to the cross and died a death that you and I were supposed to die. He shed blood that was meant for us to be shed. He went in your place. But praise God that he did. Because otherwise, we would never be free from sin and we would still be under the old covenant. Do we understand that this morning? Yes, you know that Christ died for your sins, but have you truly sat and understood what that truly means? He gave his life, his entire life for you. And the author, he uses this analogy of a will. He uses this analogy of a will, and we all know how wills work, right? Some of us may have a will in here. And this will that we make, it's a promise made by a, a certain individual to another individual that when they pass, a, a particular item that is their own is passed on to those who have been named in the will to obtain it. But we have to understand, and all of us do understand, that a will cannot take place until a person, person's death has occurred. No way can you receive the will of that one person as long as they are still living. So we have to understand that the new covenant that Christ, uh, God had promised and that Christ was supposed to usher in, it could not be given and the old covenant could not be fulfilled unless Christ died. And because Christ died, now we receive our inheritance of his righteousness. Ephesians 1, 11 to 14 talks about this inheritance. He's, Paul says to the church in Ephesus, he says this, he says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were born first to hope in Christ might be to praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do we understand that we were the inheritor of Christ's will? He came forth in our place and he died. And when he died, his righteousness was imputed upon us so that now we, our sins may be purified. They may be washed white as snow so that we may now enter into the presence of God, not in our sinful state, but in the righteousness of Christ. That is the inheritance that you have gained today. And we get full possession of that whenever we get ushered in on that judgment day, when we get ushered into eternity with him. And we'll talk about that more here in a second. So that is the blood that was needed. A death had to happen. But it's important to know that not just any death could happen. Not just any death could happen. It needed to be perfected blood. It needed to be perfected blood. It says in verses 23 to 26 that this blood that was shed was needed because of the author writes that even the old covenant was ushered in with blood. It was ushered in with blood. The old covenant was inaugurated or introduced with a death and the shedding of blood. It gets in really gory stuff there when it talks that Moses took the blood of calves and goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and he sprinkled both the book itself and he sprinkled the people with the blood. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in sprinkling this blood on the people, what he was trying to signify was the wretchedness and ugliness of their sin. And sprinkling the blood on people, it reminded them that because of your sin, someone had to die. Because of your sin, something had to die. Imagine that for a second. Your actions, your actions cause someone death. I don't know about you, but for me, that, that, that hits. That hits heavy. That because of something that I did, someone had to die. Have you ever thought about it in that way? That's what your sin. That's the, that's the sin. Because of your sin, Christ had to die. That's the importance of the blood. That's the significance of the blood to remind us that life has been lost because of our sin. And just because the old covenant was ushered in that way, therefore the new covenant was introduced in the same way as well as Christ's deaths and sprinkling of Christ's blood had to happen. But what's the difference between the blood of the old covenant and the blood of the new covenant? Because, Josh, if blood and life was being sacrificed and shed in the old covenant, why did we have to have the new covenant? Well, we've been talking about this over the last couple weeks as well. If blood represents life, as we've mentioned here today, if blood represents life, then the blood of sheep and goats really has no significance at all. Has anyone ever witnessed the life of sheep and goats? 
They're not real smart animals that don't really live a much a, a great luxurious life. All right? And that's the blood that was being represented. That was the life that was being represented in the Old Covenant to usher in our sins. Well, clearly that life is not worth my sin. It needs more. And this is why they had to repeatedly go back time and time again to sacrifice because this blood was not enough. So therefore we needed a perfect life. We needed someone that was unblemished. We needed someone that was never without sin. As the Bible said, we needed someone who knew no sin, the perfect lamb, and that was Christ. Christ's blood represents the perfect, sinless, unblemished life that he lived. And in doing so, that blood now covers us. When God looks down upon his people, those that have been redeemed by Christ's blood. He no longer sees our sins, but he sees the blood of Christ that has covered us. That for, therefore, now Christ's life has been deemed our life, and now we are deemed righteous in the sight of God. But understand that Christ's blood was so perfect and is exactly what we needed that it only had to be, be, it only had to be shed once and for all. Once and for all. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Romans 6.10, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. That once for all meant that it was the perfect, the final, the finished work of Christ. Christ once for all was sacrificed. And why was he sacrificed? It says in uh, verse 26, to put away sin. The son's superior sacrifice with the shedding of his blood dispenses sin, exiles sin, and places it under judgment. And in doing so, ultimately defeats sin. This is why we can put our hope and faith in Christ. Two weeks ago, I talked about how the old covenant could not perfect the conscience of the, the believer because they did not know when they brought their sacrifice if A, it was going to be enough, if the priest was going to be good enough, if the, if the ritual was going to be good enough. They didn't know. So therefore, they were putting their trust in something that they really couldn't guarantee but because Christ's blood and his life was perfect, we can now put our trust in him and rest easy that he has taken care of our sins. I did a little bit of a word study this week, and I may have known this before, but it just kind of came up this week, that what were Jesus' last words that he spoke out of his mouth before he died? It is finished. It is finished. If you go back in the Greek and look up what that means, it is to testify, to testify, to test, to telestai, to telestai. There it is, to telestai, to telestai. And you know what that means? That was actually an accounting term in the Greek that means paid in full. So when Christ said from his mouth to telestai, 
He said, it's paid in full. He didn't have to go back and do it again. He didn't have to keep being sacrificed. Not every year did he have to get back up on that cross and die for our sins again. No, he went to the cross and died for our sins of the past, the present, and the future. He paid our debt in full. Our mediator settled the problem. Now, what happens because of the blood? But we understand that because of sin, because of sin, it has been defeated. It has been paid for. But because of sin, there still remains a death that we will have to die. An earthly death that awaits all men. And with that death comes judgment. Be honest with yourselves here for a second. I want everybody to, everybody to hear this for a second. Listen, when I mention the words death and judgment, what sort of emotions does that bring up in you? When I say the words death and judgment, what kind of emotions does that bring up in you? Does it bring up fear? Does it bring up worry? Does it bring up anxiety? Or is there joy? Is there hope? I believe that in that answer, we can get an accurate picture of ourselves and how we view our relationship with Christ. Because on that judgment day, Christ will be returning again. But this time he's coming with a different mission. Because we said he died to sin once for all. So he came and took care of sin. He's not coming back to deal with it again. But what he's coming back for this time is he's coming back not to be our savior from sins, but he's coming back to be our rescuer. He's coming back to bring us home, those who are saved. And who is he coming to bring home? Who is he coming to rescue? It says that he's coming back to get those who eagerly are waiting for him. Those who are eagerly awaiting for him. I always tell this, I always love this time of, of day, two days a week, uh, Oakland has preschool. And uh, I'm blessed to be able to pick him up on one of those days on Thursday afternoon. And anyone that has picked up their kid from preschool, I think this is my first year, but anytime we've picked our kids up from preschool, it's funny. All the parents are waiting out in the waiting room. The teacher opens the door, and all the kids are in a line, and the teacher looks out and sees the parent, and they'll say, hey, Oakland, your dad's here. And then they peek their head out the door, and Oakland goes, Daddy! And runs to me with his arms wide open. Highlight of my week every single day. All right? That is the expectation. That is, that is the eagerly awaiting. Yes, Oakland's having fun in preschool. But man, he is awaiting that moment when mom or dad come and pick him up. Because he loves us. And he knows that we're going to pick him up and we're going to take him home. That picture of excitement. To eagerly wait means that we have a strong desire to do or have something. My question is, is that how you feel about Christ's return this morning? 
Can you honestly say that you are eagerly waiting for Christ's return? And if not, here's maybe why. Hear me out on these, all right? Here's maybe why you can't honestly say this morning that you're eagerly waiting for Christ. Maybe you're too comfortable in this world that you don't want to leave. You like your job. You love your family. You love seeing your kids grow up, your grandkids grow up. You love spending time with your spouse. This world has become all it is in your life. You have just made, made this world all that you can make it. And it has become your center of your joy and your happiness. Maybe you're caught up in some sort of sin pattern. Maybe this is a sin that just keeps you from actually seeking Christ. This sin that just has continued and continued and continued on for days, weeks, months, maybe even years. Maybe you aren't stirring your affections towards God on a daily basis. Maybe you're not in the word. Maybe you're not praying. Maybe you're not listening to other sermons or worship music or something. You're not stirring your affections. The example that this commentary that I was reading gave, it's just like a wife that's awaiting her husband to come home from overseas whenever he's fighting in a war. She's reading notes from him. She's looking at pictures of him. She's constantly stirring up affections for him so that on that day that he comes home, that affection is there and she can just embrace him with everything that she's been building up. So maybe you fall into one of those three categories this morning, and that's why you can't sit here and say, I'm eagerly awaiting Christ. But maybe today you are. Maybe today you are eagerly awaiting that the one that your soul longs for, the one who's changed your life, the one who has saved you from your sin, the one who has died in your place and imputed his righteousness onto you, maybe today you sit here and you are ready for his return. What a joy it is to hear people say, I'm ready. I believe it was Sam Loniger that said that right back there in that one pew that one day. He stood up and he said, I'm ready for Jesus to come. I'm ready to go be home with my Savior. Is that your thought this morning? Are you eagerly awaiting? Because guess what? He's coming. Whether you're ready to meet him or not, he is coming. And in Christ's first appearance, he saved us in his death and resurrection but in his return, he's coming to rescue us and bring us home. That should be something we're longing for. That should be something we're longing for. Think about this. When you're going on vacation, I know we did this at our house. We're going to Gulf Shores. We had this countdown on our calendar. We had Oakland made these little chains that he could pull apart to when we were going to go to the beach. Doing all those things to anticipate that day that we got to go to the beach. Are those same emotions building up in you each and every day that maybe today will be the day that Christ comes? 
But see, this is what separates us from unbelievers. Christ is coming, and this eagerly awaiting Christ is what separates us from unbelievers. Because the hope that we have in his return and in that final judgment is one that should bring us joy and anticipation, not fear and worry. We are washed in his blood, made righteous in God's sight, and there's coming a day where that blood that was shed for us will be our ticket into eternity. So if that's you today, it's time that we thank Jesus for that blood applied. And if that's not you today, the invitation's open. He has went and died in your place. And all you have to do is trust him that his death and resurrection was worth it. That it was enough to pay for the sin that you've been living in for years. You can't outsin his grace and mercy. You can't outsin his blood. It's perfect. And we thank him so much for that blood being applied. And it's in that blood being applied that we can eagerly await our Savior's return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come to you right now. God, we thank you, Father, for your blood applied. Father, we knew that blood was needed. Lord, we knew that life was needed for the sins that we've committed. Father, from the day that Adam and Eve sinned, Father God, and sin entered the world, Lord, there was separation. We needed a mediator to come in our place, to bridge that gap. And Father God, you did. Father, the scriptures tell us, Lord, that you left your throne in heaven and you came down to earth. Lord, you walked this life, you lived this life, Father God, sinless, blameless, unblemished. And in doing so, Father God, you became the perfect sacrifice that we needed for our sins. Father, so that we didn't have to keep going back to the temple time after time after time again. But, Father, we could rest in knowing, Lord, that for once and for all, you went to the heavenly mercy seat. You sprinkled your blood. You died on that cross, Lord, the death that we had to pay. And, Father God, it was enough to cover our sins. And, Father, Lord, because of that, because of the blood that you shed upon us, Lord, we can stand here today eagerly waiting, awaiting your return. Father, for it is in your blood Lord, that is our ticket into heaven. Lord, that eternity with you. I pray today, Lord, that we can be eagerly awaiting disciples of Christ. Waiting for that moment, Lord, where there will be no more tears, no more sorrow. But, Father God, joy everlasting. Communion with you forever. God, let, us, let our hearts and souls be stirred towards that this morning. God, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus. We thank you.